Hi, my name is Adrienne Beatty, and I'm the Kids Ministry Director at Saltbox Church, where you can find a community who will walk with you into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. Good morning. Welcome if you're here in person. I also want to look on to our cameras here and welcome you if you're joining us online. What a day. What a beautiful day outside. It feels like fall. The humidity is down. Come on. Bless Jesus. It's what makes Wilmington a great beach town, but I'm always glad when it goes. Okay, I am, we are, uh, if you're new with us today, I just want to say welcome. We are going through the book of Acts. Um, I'm actually in Acts 14. We're going to finish Acts chapter 14 today. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 20, and we're going to run through the very end of the chapter. That's verse 28. Um, so what's fascinating uh, about this is, is Paul, so the Apostle Paul is who we've been talking about, and he's traveling with Barnabas, and they're going into these cities, and they're, they're preaching Jesus, and what's, I think, wild to me is they're setting up um, indigenous uh, churches. So indigenous just meaning um, the empowerment of local peoples. Does that make sense? So one of the things that even as we do missions, um, as we look and, and do, uh, we're, we're supportive. We give 10% off everything we get every year, and we invest into church planning missions around the world. And one of, the, one of our, like, um, sort of uh, galvanizing points is that they would empower indigenous peoples. In other words, that, that we as Americans wouldn't be being sent in and they're trying to mimic the way we do life or church. You hear what I'm saying? But, but rather that we're empowering indigenous people. So really what, the way I want to approach this text this morning is this is Paul's sort of um, indigenization policy, or it's how he goes about setting up church. And it's, it's really fascinating um, so uh, the other thing that I want to introduce with this morning is a story of a friend of mine. <clears throat> and um, he, sometimes he watches online. If he does, he's going to send me a text and, you know, whatever. But dear friend of mine, I actually got to travel through um, Israel with him in 2018. Very, very special uh, man. His name is Gany Begu. He's one of our, uh, the missionaries that we support. But he's an Albanian national. And Gany's story, Gany and his wife Sony's story, is something that it, their story reminds me of some of this um, in the book of Acts. And I've never, uh, I've never heard um, I, I've never had a chance to personally interact with someone who has experienced the gospel in the way that Guinea and Sony experienced the gospel. So here's their story in a nutshell, and if he's watching online, he'll text me and tell me what I have wrong, no doubt. Hey, Guinea. But uh, Guinea uh, gave his life um, to Christ um, in 1991 when communism fell in the country of Albania. And we have a couple of Albanian families, actually, at part of our church. And he was, as I understand it, the third or fourth person to come to Christ um, in Albania. Because when communism exists, get what doesn't? The gospel or freedom of faith. So it, it was this isolated, closed nation. So in 1991, communism fell. And with that, a few courageous missionaries went in and they began to preach Jesus, just like Paul and Barnabas are preaching Jesus here. So this is 1991, like in a lot of our lifetimes. And... Uh, so Guinea was the third person to come to Christ, and he devoured the New Testament. And what they began to do was they began to go from village to village, city to city, and preach the hope of the gospel. And you have a people who have been absolutely destitute um, and have had no freedom. And all of a sudden, they hear the good news of Christ Jesus, and guess what happens? They come to Christ. 
And so Gennie got to experience uh, these towns and villages and cities as they would go through. They had this growing sort of group of people, and they would preach Jesus, and people would give their hearts um, to Jesus, and then they would move on. But they were faced with the challenge of, what do we do with the believers that are now in this city? And so they would actually, um, in some cases, appoint and set up elders and launch churches, like plant a church on the spot and then keep rolling. And it's the only thing, uh, there are other stories that I have read kind of in our modern day that, that have elements of that, but it's the only thing that I have touched personally. So to sit in uh, the Holy Land in Israel with Gennie and to share some of those stories and to hear, he's very like um, humble, he would never tell you that if you met him, so I had to gather it and glean it from other people. But a- as we read this, I want you to almost um, think uh, about the Apostle Paul as he is going from city to city, village to village. He is preaching Jesus. People are giving their life to Christ. And then he's got this responsibility of like, what happens now? This has never been done before, right? So he's going to empower the indigenous church to arise. So he's going to bring under the indigenous church the control, the dominance, the influence of people native to that area. Okay, so as we sort of tiptoe into this, um, let me also issue a word of caution to us as Saltbox, okay? You know that I always do this. But a word of caution. Um, Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller, wrote an article called Leadership and Church Size Dynamics. It's a fabulous article. You should read it. It's the gold standard sort of on church growth and size dynamics. It's very, very good. But one of the things that he points out that I think is very important for us, and even as we read this text, is oftentimes, and a common problem in churches, especially American churches, is we tend to make a particular or attach maybe a moral significance to an idealized church size. You hear me? So in other words, some people come in, "Ah, I can't stand the mega church." And some people come in, I can't stand the house church. And some people come in, I, you know. So we, we attach, um, intentionally or unintentionally, we attach uh, a moral significance or even God's favor on a particular size church. Let me just clear the plate for you. The body of Christ extends beyond all church sizes. It, it, it extends way beyond. Does God use mega church? Yes. Does, does God use house church? Yes. Does God use small churches? Yes, in fact, in America, the average church size is like 75 people. That's kind of crazy. But 70%, I think, of believers attend very large churches. It's kind of a wild sort of set of statistics there. But here's what I want you to do is I want you to even begin to go, Holy Spirit, if there's something in me that has moralized a particular size church, I repent. Repentance is a good thing. It's an old school word, and if you've heard it used um, inappropriately, let me tell you how to appropriately use it. When your heart and mind doesn't align with the Bible and the lordship of King Jesus, it's very simple. Jesus paid it all. He died on a cross. He shed his blood to cover your sin. So you just go, Father, would you forgive me, and would you help me believe the truth about your word and your son, and would you empower me to move on? Simple. That's how you repent. It's very easy. I do it most every day. You should too, like breathing. We live in the finished work of the cross. Okay, Um, we're getting ready to turn to our Bible, so if somebody would hit the lights for me or just turn the lights up just a little bit so people in the audience can read, that would be great. Okay, now, the other thing, I I realize I'm setting the table. I've got a lot of things I'm setting the table with this morning, but I want you to keep in mind, so church size dynamics is one thing I want you to keep in mind. Second thing I want you to keep in mind is what, this is Michael's vernacular. I've never read anybody else say it, so this is just kind of my principle, but I would call it the 33-33-33 principle. 
33.30, it's actually be 33.3, 33.3, 33.33, whatever, principle. Okay, but, but here's what it basically says, is as Christians, if you look at the New Testament, if you look at the Gospels, if you look at King Jesus, um, 33% of our call is to win the lost. Okay? 33% of our call is to make disciples. And 33% of our call is to build indigenous churches. And we're going to see it in this text this morning. Okay? So if we focus on just making disciples or just winning the lost, we are, would be a little bit of a lopsided church. You know what I'm saying? And churches do that. They get into a groove and they're like really rock out one area. And I think that is okay. But in biblically, if you look through the gospels, through the epistles, through the, the, um, everything the Lord Jesus did, I think you have winning the lost, making disciples, and then building and growing communities of believers. And I would actually say and challenge you at some point, if you're not in a community of believers, you are missing out on a large portion of what it means to journey in and through the body of Christ. You cannot grow without iron sharpening iron, stepping on one another's toes. Um, it is part of the human journey is being in the body of Christ, the body of Jesus. Okay, let's start reading. Um, and here's what we're going to point out and talk about. Um, all, Paul's whole missionary journey is undergirded um, by divine guidance. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, and then I think there's three things that he really introduces that, um, that, that let him empower the indigenous church. That's what we're going to talk about. It's apostolic instruction, pastoral oversight, and divine faithfulness. So we will unpack that, and then we're going to tie this up at the end just with the idea of the amount of risk that Paul took to leave a city and leave a church and fully empower it and trust it to the hands of God and then to move on. Make sense? All right, so let's read. <coughs> Did anybody get the lights? Did those come up? Yes? Okay, good. Great. I obviously can't see past my lights. That's why we need the body. Okay. Uh, Acts 14, starting in verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, so Paul has been stoned, thrown these huge stones at him. His full head and body would have been bloodied enough that they thought he was dead. Uh, after... Um, after after he'd been stoned, the disciples gather around him, and he got up, and he went back into the city. We talked all about that last week. So the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Okay, so he got up, went back to the city where he was stoned. Next day, he went to Derby. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Amen. Winning people to Jesus. Then, now, <clears throat> let's pause right here. Then, if you want to circle then, you can if you're opening your Bible. Here, let me just explain something to you about Derby. Um, so Derby is up near this high mountain pass, and Paul was so close to his sending church. Anybody remember his sending church? Antioch. Somebody said it. Well done. So his sending church was Antioch, and he was in Derby. He's right over a little mountain pass. All he would have had to do was hike up through this mountain pass, and then he would have hiked straight down into Antioch, and he would have been back really home. Right, And he would have uh, probably uh, been able to take some time off, a furlough is what we'd call it now, or a break or a sabbatical or whatever. But guess what Paul decides to do? Because he always chooses the easy way. 
So instead, I mean, he's right there. I can only, like, I would love to be able to, like, intersect with these guys at these points in their journey because I would just love to show up and know what was he really thinking at this moment. Like, he had to be looking at the mountain pass and looking back at where he'd come from and gone, it'd be so much easier. He's had malaria. He has been stoned. He's been almost stoned. He's been hated. He's been drug out and left for dead. I mean, this guy has been through it. He's been abandoned by one of his best friends, John Mark, remember? I mean, he has been through it. Surely he wants to just give up and go up over the mountain pass and hike on back down to where he came from. But what's he do? He turns his face back and he's going to go back and he's actually going to set up church in all of these places that he and Barnabas have preached. So let's keep reading. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. If you have a Bible, circle the faith because we're going to come back to that. That's a really important phrase, and we're going to talk about why in a little bit. <clears throat> now, check this out. I mean, this is like super encouraging. Paul's about to really encourage everybody. Are you ready? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's the way you want to start off a big citywide like campaign or crusade, right? We must go through many hardships. In fact, I would even encourage you today, if you're looking at your life and you're wondering, why have I endured so many hardships? Why has there been so much suffering? Why has there been so much difficulty? Look at this. It could be that God is using or allowing, and I wouldn't say for a minute that God causes hardship or he authors hardship, but I would say that he allows hardship. You go, Michael, that's semantics. No, it's not. He allows these things in our life, and if we will surrender and commit them to him, he will use them always, 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 both for his glory and for our good. And our greatest good is always accomplished underneath the covering of his greatest glory. It's huge. Our greatest good, like if you seek God's greatest glory, your greatest good will simultaneously be accomplished. Always. Okay. We must go through many, I could just leave it right there. Good morning, church. We must go through many hardships. To, <laughs> okay, they said, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Everybody say each church. And with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So who did they put their trust in? Who? Ooh we got a split audience. Come on, let's read it again. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. I love this because are Paul and Barnabas entrusting a group of elders? Yes, but who are they ultimately entrusting? God. Beautiful, beautiful text right there. <clears throat> Verse 24, after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. You may or may not remember this, but this is where Paul almost assuredly got malaria and had the searing headaches. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Verse 25, and when they had preached the word in Pergia, they went down to Atalia. So he is literally going back through from this high mountain pass up in Derby. He is going back through every city in which he passed. He is preaching the gospel again. He is leading more people to faith. And then what else is he doing? organizing and setting up churches. Now, some of us resist this. We go, oh my goodness, we love it when a church is like small and it's kind of a amoeba. But in order for a church to progress, you always have to move into some order and some organization. It happened biblically, it always happens. It's, it's part of the journey. 
They went down to Italia, verse 26. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. So this is really important. So Paul and Barnabas were actually sent by the church in Antioch. So they were authorized, they were given authority. So the church in Antioch became their sending church and they went out from that place. Now, so when Paul and Barnabas go to a city and they preach and a bunch of people give their lives to Jesus and then um, after these people give their lives to Jesus, Paul and Barnabas appoint or elect elders. So when they elect or appoint elders, they set up elders, they are not simply acting on their own authority. Right? They are under the authority or leadership covering, first of who? Almost. First, the church in Antioch, and then of God. So it's, it's really an amazing like, um, structure that you begin to see that they are setting up here. So let's keep going. <clears throat> they had committed uh, the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and had a mission conference. That's what it says in not so many words, but we'll read it. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. You can cross-reference some of Galatians 2 if you want to, to know some of what happened there. We'll look at that um, in the next couple of weeks. But they stayed there for about one year. So you get this idea that they came into their home-sending church, and they set up shop, and they probably rested, and they recovered, and they preached, and they broke bread, and they did life with these people, and they had the first, I really think this is like the first missions conference. They all gathered around, and they shared. And God did this in Derby, and God did this in Lystra, and God did this in Pamphylia, and -and so-and-so got healed here, and God showed up there and check out what this church is doing there. And they just shared, like they just encouraged one another in the Lord. <clears throat> okay, so let's take a step back and here's, here's what I wanna look at in, in and through this particular text. I wanna look at all of the first missionary journey being undergirded by divine guidance. Then I wanna talk about Paul really entrusting um, these churches to apostolic instruction, pastoral oversight, and divine faithfulness. Okay, here we go. Um, Here's what I mean by the first missionary journey being founded on divine guidance. Uh, And I would actually tell you, like, the most notable feature of Paul's first missionary journey is that God led the way through the empowering and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So remember back with me. Uh, We could even flip there, but I'm not going to. We've already preached through it. But when the church in Antioch was told by the Holy Spirit, remember what he said? Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I've commanded them to do, and then send them off. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, called Paul and Barnabas um, and set them apart and then sent them. And then, as we read through, the Holy Spirit is leading them from place to place. The Holy Spirit is giving power to their preaching. The Holy Spirit is giving converts and and establishing these new churches. Um, And then you have this idea that Antioch, their sending church, also sort of welcomed them back home. So I would say that the Holy Spirit is working in them. He is working through them. The grace and power of what was done in and through Paul and Barnabas was sourced in him. So the glory and credit must also go to him. I think if I would say something here, in fact, if if you're part of our church, Um, and you're uncomfortable with the idea of divine guidance, 
I would ask you to um, begin to open your heart and say, Lord, would you begin to speak to me on this subject? And I would even uh, encourage you to look at a book. It's one of my favorite books on this subject, um, and it's called Hearing God by Dallas Willard. It's like a, I just read it um, a couple months ago, but it is like a, um, almost a comprehensive textbook on hearing and, and following the divine guidance of the Lord. Having a conversational relationship with the Lord is the way Dallas would actually say it. But what you get here is this idea that God is leading Paul, he is leading Barnabas, he is leading the New Testament church, and they are going from place to place following the Lord. And I think what I would also point out here is just because things get hard or get difficult or get challenging doesn't mean God's not in it. It actually might be the proof that he is. You hear me? Okay. So let's open then this next idea, and we'll, I'll reference back to some of these verses, but what is, what is Paul's um, sort of indigenous uh, empowering um, policy? What, what did that really look like? So the first thing I want to point out here is apostolic instruction. So go back to verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city, and they won a large number of disciples. And then in verse 22, um, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to what did we circle? The faith. Okay, so a couple of things here that I think is important. Um, the first thing is you got this apostolic instruction. So remember, some of these people would have been Jews, and as Jews, they would have had what? The Old Testament. Okay, so they have some Old Testament scriptures. Now all of a sudden, you're introducing um, some New Testament doctrine, and the faith begins to indicate to me and to a number of different commentators that um, that they actually had a body of sort of recognizable doctrine and truth um, that was being taught. So it, we, I could take you to a number of other past. Uh, passages, but elsewhere it is called um, the tradition or the deposit or the teaching or the truth um, or the faith, but it is, it, it, what it indicates to most commentators is that, that these churches were already beginning to hold to um, a set of doctrines that would have included the Old Testament, but every time a pastor or preacher or something like Paul would have come through, they would have made some notes, and so they're beginning to collect things about God being the living God, triune, God the Father, God the Son, the God, the Holy Spirit, the creator of all things, King Jesus, holy God, holy man, um, who died for our sins, fulfilling the Old Testament, becoming the Passover um, lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, raised from the dead according to the scriptures, ascending into heaven, being coronated and crowned King Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. Um, probably doctrines about the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers the believers and empowers the church, doctrine about the salvation of God, doctrine about the new community of believers in King Jesus. So they're beginning to um, hold these things together. And what's fascinating is by the time Paul dies, the Apostles' Creed was eventually put together where a lot of this doctrine is sort of held for us. That's one of the things we would subscribe to um, as a church. But what's fascinating is from this text, uh, verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, you begin to get this idea that each church is beginning to collect the Old Testament scriptures, some of the doctrines that have come through, perhaps an Apostles' Creed, doctrine about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what they've been taught about Jesus. So when these churches gather, guess what they do? They're gonna break it out and read it. 
They're going to break it out and share. So it is from that place that the early church fathers ultimately assembled the canon of Scripture. They looked at what was divinely inspired by Jesus through the apostles and written down, and that's ultimately how we got the canon of Scripture is from these New Testament churches who were gathering little scraps and and scrolls and things and and getting together, breaking bread, um, sharing the resurrection power of Jesus and reading what they knew to be true. So when Paul leaves a city, um, it, and it's a little bit crazy to me if, if you really think about it, because like in America, we love um, almost to, to have our finger in everything. You know what I'm saying? Like we want to have our hand on the you know, steering wheel and on the throttle, and we want to like kind of like be in charge. And you get this idea that Paul is fully trusting God and the Holy Spirit of God um, in and through these young, growing, even fledgling sort of infant churches. And the first thing that we see is apostolic instruction. He entrusted them to apostolic instruction. Now, do I think for a minute Paul thought things were going to go well? Let me rephrase that. Do I think for a minute that Paul thought things were going to go perfectly? Absolutely not. But what he was entrusting is that when things get messy, that people will dig into the person of Jesus. They will surrender their hearts and their lives. They will seek him. They will search the scriptures. And they will work together um, so that the Holy Spirit of God can work in and through that church. So the first thing we see is apostolic um, instruction. Second thing we have is pastoral oversight. I love this. Go back to 1423. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders. How about that? Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. That's like every single church. What did they do? They appointed elders. One with prayer and fasting, they committed them, meaning the church, the elders, to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. <clears throat> so a couple, couple things that I would say here. If there's something that defines a church, it is probably elders. So when someone says to me, Michael, I'm going to a, um, a house church, I go, great. Are, are there some elders? Are there some people who have some responsibility and some shepherding? Have, has, has that group called a few people and said, hey, will you like eld us? Will you be overseers? Will you walk with us? Because at the end of the day, we as people are always called from Genesis to Revelation to have a shepherd, even shepherds. So if you go on our website and you click under like our leadership, at the bottom of our leadership, I've got a group of overseers. And we're even adding a couple more overseers to be in full accordance with our bylaws. But why does Michael have overseers? Because I need some accountability, right? And if I go off the rails, what are the overseers going to step in and do? Attention, Michael. But what God has set up, and it doesn't mean that elders are perfect. In fact, oftentimes they're imperfect. And oftentimes we as Christians get in a church, elders are imperfect. Elders being teaching elders, pastors, you can call them any number of things, but are imperfect and they hurt us. And if we're not careful, we can actually turn our heart against not only them, but uh, the, that church, but then the capital C church and really even worse than that, God. So you actually have a lot of people who can begin to turn away from God because they're hurt, frustrated, and disappointed with an elder or group of elders or people that they thought represented God. This is very true with even a child who experiences abuse at the hand of a parent or a trusted family member. 
right? You take someone who should have loved you, served you, honored you, helped you, lifted you, blessed you, you know, made the way easy for you, and they end up hurting you. And so you end up hardening your heart against God, against that person, against family members, against church, and turning away and isolating yourself. And guess what is the death of your soul? Isolation, separating. And and there's like a crisis, I would say, in the body of Christ right now of people who are hurt and frustrated and it's actually, I, I tracked this down a little bit, but um, Gandhi supposedly said, and I don't think he actually ever said it, but it's an interesting quote that people kick around. I would, be, I would be a Christian if it weren't, uh, I would, let's see, I would be a Christian uh, if it weren't for your, Christ, I would follow your Christ if it weren't for you Christians. I don't think he said it. My research would indicate. But the, the principle holds as we as Christians get messy. But, but here's the thing, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God still calls us to be in community and to look at people in the eye and go, man, you hurt my feelings when and I didn't feel good and I need to go and talk to my brother or my sister, right? He calls us to be in these vibrant, healthy, hope-filled communities and they have to be under some level of pastoral oversight. So let me ask a different question. If a church doesn't have some level of elders, should you be there? Should you be there? Probably not. I wouldn't go there. I think everybody needs accountability. The Bible thinks everybody needs accountability. Paul and Barnabas went from city to city and set up who? Elders. There you go. You could cross-reference, uh, we're not going to turn there, but you cross-reference 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 on what is an elder if you wanted to, and we could do some more teaching on that. But the, the main call here is, is pastoral oversight um, and that there is some level of leadership. Uh, that, and, and Paul and Barnabas are setting it up from local within the congregation. Um, and, and at this point, it's probably like it's a plurality of people, um, and you even get the idea of some a loose membership in the church, right? There's some accountability, there's some structure, there's an authority structure. And what's fascinating then is you wouldn't have had Saltbox Church. You just had like the church in Antioch, and you had the church in Derby, and there was just one church, right? So that's even why in the Apostles' Creed, we said the Apostles' Creed um, a number of weeks ago, and it says um, the, the, the Holy Catholic Church. And everybody gets all weird. Well, why did we say Holy Catholic Church? Catholic means universal. It has nothing to do with the Catholic Church that you and I think of. It, this, when the Apostles' Creed was written, the Catholic Church um, and the Protestant Church hadn't yet split. So everything was just the church, and the church was called the Just the universal church, the big church. So that's in the back of the Apostles' Creed or in the bottom of it. But anyway, that's a a separate thing that we could roll on. But So the first thing we have is apostolic instruction. Second thing we have is pastoral or elder oversight. And the third thing that I think is absolutely beautiful here is we have divine faithfulness. So let's look at 23, verse 23, part B, the second part of it. I'll read the whole thing. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and with fasting and committed them, so both the elders and the church, to the Lord in whom they put their trust. Ultimately, this is the case for empowering the indigenous church is based on the conviction that the church is God's and he can be trusted to look after his own people. I mean, he can be trusted. So Paul really believed that these churches could be left at some level to manage their own affairs. And after 
um, you know, he, he, they had apostles to teach them. They had pastors to shepherd them. They had elders to oversee them. They had the Holy Spirit of God to guide them, protect them, discipline them, bless them. So there's this sort of threefold provision that unfolds here, apostolic instruction, pastoral oversight, and divine faithfulness. So you, you, you get this, um, this, this idea uh, that, that Paul is um, sending um, and, and even leading and ushering. So he's leading people to Jesus, and then he is part of sending them out. So before I tie this up, I want to pause, and I want to speak into some vision for Saltbox. Okay? I don't do this often, but I'm going to do this. <clears throat> I believe one of the things God has called us as a church to is to develop a somewhat comprehensive church planting pathway. Okay? So what does that mean? I believe at some point God has called us to um, set up a person and or persons who would oversee the development of a young pastor or pastors unto church planning. So like, what, what might that look like? Well, they would need to have some seminary experience. I don't know that they need to have their entire MDiv. It's helpful. Um, but they need to have some Old Testament and some New Testament. They need to have some Greek and they need to have some Hebrew. They need to have an understanding of church sort of polity and the way things work. They need to have some leadership experience in the church. They need to develop the preaching gift. They ought to lead in probably different areas around Saltbox. And then that person or persons, that couple, would need to start forming a small group of people who are actually called to go. And then we as a church would begin to fund them. So as they're going through this two, three year process, we're beginning to set aside money so that we can send them. And then let me open up this door also. I have mixed, um, let me, let me um, reference back to my size dynamics with Tim Keller. Um, I don't think there's anything morally or biblically wrong with church campuses. Okay. However, at some point, if all you're doing is adding more and more church campuses, you are preventing the indigenization of the church. In other words, the idea of a new church being planted is that you have a new pastor, and you have a new worship leader or leaders, and you have new small group leaders, and you have new youth leaders and kids leaders, and you have all these leaders who are suddenly, they've been um, young in their faith, and regardless of their age, and now they're stepping into areas of maturity and responsibility. And so when you plant another church, guess what happens? You have all these people that step into this new call and role and responsibility. So at some point, I am, of, I am a, a personally of the persuasion that we shouldn't just campus and campus and campus, but we should plant and plant and plant. You follow me? Now, if we are planting unto or campusing unto planting, I'm all for it. Here's what I mean. It is terrible to start a new church. You gotta be the preaching pastor and you gotta be the executive pastor and the small group pastor and the worship pastor. One time, this is really funny, one time at Hoggard High School, the worship leader didn't show up and I led us. It was terrible. It was terrible. It's like the worst, I was like, oh my goodness. I'm sweating bullets. We really just read a few Psalms and it ended up being a precious, like sweet, sweet time. But here's the point. Like planting a church is so difficult. And if we can open the door for a group of people who've now been together for a couple of years, built relationship and community in life, and they're ready to be sent out, perhaps they fly out and look at their city and they begin to look for homes in the area and we actually slowly send them. And then once they finally launch, they know who they are and what God's called them to. They're going to that city. They're under sort of 
our covering or our umbrella for a season. And perhaps for a minute or maybe for a year, we pipe in our preaching so that senior pastor doesn't have to preach 52 times a year, but can preach 20 or 25 times a year. That's a big deal, by the way, early on. And all of a sudden, that church begins to grow and get on their feet. And in time, when it's appropriate, we cut the umbilical cord. And they stand on their own two feet. They become an indigenous church in that area. We raise up people and send them out. So I think that's one of the things that we are called to do here at Saltbox. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that is radical, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting back. If you have questions about that or you want to talk about that later, we can, you, you can meet me out offline and we can talk about a church planting track because I believe God's called us to that. But let me go back to when Paul set up a church, the Apostle Paul, he set it up on the basis of apostolic instruction, pastoral oversight, and divine faithfulness. Now, one of the things that I love about Yahweh God, King Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, is their rigorous commitment to freedom. Here's what I mean. Paul's gospel... Jesus' gospel was anti-imperialistic. In other words, he didn't come in and set up these high-controlling people and tell each church how to do it. No, no, no. What did he do? Set it up, prayer and fasting, and then? Now, he'll come back and check on them. He'll write them letters of correction. But he is not micromanaging. He is not domineering. He is giving such radical freedom to the believers Now, the greatest demonstration of the love of a holy God is actually the freedom he gives us. So a lot of times people will say to me, Michael, how can God send a person to eternal darkness or hell or Gena or whatever you want to use from Scripture? And I'll go, hang on. I think it would be easier if you understood this under the premise or under the understanding that a loving God is so committed to your freedom and at the freedom of every human being and the dignity of every human being on planet Earth that he will allow you to choose to reject him and make their eternal home in darkness. It is very different than this angry God who is sending someone into eternal darkness. No, 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 this is a God who so loves you that he is going to allow you to choose your path. This day I set before you blessings and curses, life and death. This day, choose life. It's the same from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden to right here in Derby and Antioch. It is the same God who loves us so much that he's going to give this radical freedom. So Paul, when he's rolling out of these cities, he's anti-imperial, he's anti-colonialism. In other words, one of the things that we did in the early part of the 19th century was we would send missionaries and we would make indigenous peoples dress like us and look like us and think like us and talk like us and we'd reproduce little western churches. No, 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 no. Like, there's a fine line between leading people into the fullness of the gospel of Christ Jesus and not mimicking the American version or the United Kingdom version of church. You hear me? So God, in his sovereign viewpoint, bestows such freedom, and then Jesus, as an agent of Yahweh God, bestows such freedom, and then Paul, as an agent of Jesus, goes in and bestows such freedom. So what if this church goes off the rails and they go crazy? They might. 
They might, and he'll write some letters. And as we look at the rest of the New Testament, some of his letters come in to correct where churches have gone off the rails. But God is committed to helping his people steward their freedom. Now, let me make a slight pivot here. I am a believer that the greatest thing we as parents are called to do is empower our kids to steward their freedom. In other words, we as parents are not supposed to be controlling our kids and micromanaging and do this and do that and dress like this and comb your hair. No, no, no. no. We are teaching them that as they make their own decisions, there are consequences and repercussions to good decisions and not so wise decisions, and they have to manage that freedom under God. So it's the same with church. So when you get this, this, the radical nature of the gospel is that it is so entrenched in the love of God and personal freedom that it is absolutely mind-boggling. Paul and Barnabas didn't go in to set up control. In fact, Paul is anti-control, anti-coercion, anti-manipulation, anti-sales tactics. He's just going to tell you the truth and say, give your life to Jesus. And then he's going to set up some elders and go, y'all lead this thing, and I'm going to come back in a few years and check on you. And if you get off the rails, I'm going to write you a serious letter like I did to the church in Galatia. Which, by the way, these are some of the churches in Galatia. But you've got to grasp something here. And that is the love of God bestows freedom so richly on you and on I and on every human that he created. Some of you are going today, how could God let something so evil happen in the Middle East? How could God let such evil happen in our country? Or you fill in the blank. And I would say to you, it's because the love of God is such that he has given freedom. And the day will come when he comes back for his bride, the body of Christ, the capital C church. And he rules and reigns and establishes a new heaven and a new earth and a new Eden. And we're in the new Jerusalem. All that is going to happen. And once that happens, our choices, whether we chose life, whether we chose Jesus, or whether we chose death, whether we chose eternal darkness, will all be evident. And we will spend our lives based on what we chose. Now, is God sovereign around our choices? Absolutely. In fact, I would say that God's sovereignty are bookends to humans' free will. But God gives free will. And you've got to grasp the freedom of God. You've got to connect the freedom of God with the love of God in such a way that you can understand how God wants to minister in and through people and do church. <clears throat> Let me tell you something happening, and I'm so glad you're out here because I'm about to close. Something happening in my house right now that's funny. Our two younger kids, I'm not going to tell you who, because you'll walk out and say to one of them, bah, bah, bah. But our two younger ones, I have one of them right now that is um, helping the other one do what is right. And oftentimes it looks like this. No, you have to do this. Come on. No, go. And guess what? The, the other one doesn't want to do it. So guess what they do? The one who's dragging, I'm going to push, shoulder, make them do it, because it's the right thing to do. Listen to me here for a second. That child that is trying to drag our other child is doing the right thing, just in the wrong way which a lot of us as believers spend our lives doing the right things in the wrong way. And Jesus is this God who extends such freedom 
and such grace. And he is always there waiting. And your story might be like my story where I was living in the pig pens like Luke 15. And one day I came to my senses and went, Lord, where have I gone? What has happened to me? And I began to turn back to this God that loved me and pursued me. And ultimately I found my way home and he ran to me. That's the story of the gospel of King Jesus. It's the story that he offers to you. It's the story that he offers to churches in this country and around the world. It's the story that Paul offered to this group of people. And then Paul empowered them to self-govern, to self-lead. And he entrusted them to God's divine faithfulness. And he walked away and went back to Antioch for a year and rested before his second missionary journey. Let's pray. Worship team, would you come out? Father, if I could pray in words of declaration anything over our church, it would be that we would be a church built on and characterized by divine guidance. Father, if I could pray anything over the lives of all of our congregation, it would be that their lives would be built on divine guidance. Father, if I could pray anything over our church, it would be that we would be founded upon apostolic instruction, pastoral and elder oversight, and your divine faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, not our ability to get it right or perform it right or make it right, but your faithfulness. Father, I pray that as we look to the future of Saltbox and as we look to even perhaps participating with you and maybe your heart to do another great awakening in this country and overseas. Father, I pray that we could become a church that is so much more interested in our ability to send and reach than our ability to keep. Father, would you allow us to become a church that is concerned with those who've never heard the gospel of Christ Jesus? Father, would you allow us to become a church who makes disciples, who wins people to Christ, and who builds great, healthy organizations of church? Father, would you forgive us? There's some in the room who've hardened their hearts against the church or pastors or elders or people, men, women from the past who've hurt you. Father, I pray that you would help them to forgive, to let go. In fact, let me do something unusual, church. I'm, I'm praying, but look at me a second. Look at me. As a representation of a pastor, so an elder, a shepherd, if you've been hurt by a pastor or an elder or a shepherd on behalf of God and as a representation, would you forgive me? Hear me a second. Let it go. Would you forgive me? If you've been hurt by a pastor, a church, an elder, let it go. And let the kingdom and the will and the way of God work in you and through you. Father, I pray for our church that you would raise us up to abide in relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We're gonna close in a worship song here. Prayer team, would you come up and make yourself available? If you'd like special prayer, come on up here. As soon as they close us in this song, I'll jump back up and close us in prayer. Stand with us and let's make a joyful noise together. I love you, Lord. 
Oh, your mercy never fails me In all my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God us to declare this together as we close this is the great commission 
So Jesus stood on Aramis Heights, the Mount of Beatitudes, and here's what he said. Can we say it together? Ready? One, two, three. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, we would love to pray with you right down here. Don't walk out of here without surrendering your life to him. And if you're here today and you've never seen your life as on mission to share and participate in the expansion of the gospel of Christ Jesus, don't walk out of here without receiving that call. We love you and we believe in you. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to walk with you on your own Jesus journey to grow into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. For information to join us in person or online, check out saltboxchurch.com. Just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.